Hello, and welcome to Remember the Film, the podcast where there's no happy ending with us, but you'll still want to hear it. Uh, oh. I'm today's host, Jeff Grizz Ulrich, and uh, I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-hosts, Hugo Panay and Josh Bradley. Hugo, how are you doing? Doing good. Thank you very much. How are you? Quite well. Quite well. Thank you for asking. And Josh? I'm doing pretty well, man. How you doing? I guess you just answered I mean, that, I just so you don't need to answer it. a second time. Yeah, I got it. I was listening. Just, I just, just you know. say it again. You know, just, I'm from the Midwest. It just good. comes out. Thank How you are you? Asking. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Well, so uh, we are here today to discuss my favorite movie of all time, Burying the Lead. Sorry. Hey. <laughs> but that's why we're hey. talking about it. Uh, it is a movie called The Fall, originally released in 2006, but really released in 2008. If we're being honest, well, premiered in 2006, released in 2008, I think would be the technical. Yes, that would be the accurate way to say that. But when you look it up on any website, it's going to say 2006 next to it. So confusing, confusing, confusing. It's one of those Ah, things. But the movie, The Fall, directed by Tarsum Singh, like I said, one of my favorite movies of all time and uh, a movie that very much fits the bill of our podcast. Remember the film. Because it is not only a movie that has not been seen by a ton of people in in like the grand scheme of things, but it's also a movie that is very hard to see, <laughs> as it turns out. Nowadays, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Unless Frustrating you're so. in Italy and you can see it on YouTube for some reason. But, well, yeah. you know that's the way the copyright laws work. Some some things are protected in the U.S. that aren't protected everywhere else. So yeah. If you go to that same YouTube link in the U.S., it tells you, hey, sorry, dude, you can't watch this. Unless you have a VPN. Unless you have a VPN. Which, which may or may not be how I not. watched it, but I'll never tell. Which is not our sponsor for this podcast. But <laughs> we can mention it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we, we talked about it a little last week. But yeah, this movie, for whatever reason, and I, I looked everywhere to try to find out why. I even tweeted at Lee Pace. To ask him why this movie is <laughs> not available streaming. Well, I, I figured that at the very least, if, if I tweeted it at him, some other big The Fall fan might see the question. Right. And, you should and tweet respond. it Spike Jones or tweet it David Fincher. I mean, that's David the Fincher's next step. Yeah, but uh, actually, I bet I bet David Fincher is on Twitter, just like in a burner account, and he just like keeps tabs and everything. And oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, he's a shit poster. I would have sure. for sure. Like, I would have tweeted at Tarsum Singh. Oh, go ahead, Hugo. David Fincher probably has like a, a an alt account with an anime F- PFB or something. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I, I would anarchy. I would have tweeted at the director Tarsum Singh, but he is not on Twitter, and so I, I went to the you know highest profile person from the movie that I could find and tweeted at him. Got no response, so it'll remain a mystery for now. But uh, the movie's not available on any streaming services currently. It has been in the past, so I, it is you know something that could return. Who knows when? Uh, but I know I've seen it on Netflix uh, years ago, so mm-hmm. it is possible that you know it could appear somewhere else. Uh, but anyways, uh, we're going to start like we always do and answer the question: What have we been watching since we last recorded? And we will start with Josh. Not a whole lot, because so you know, Same. we sometimes we sometimes have you know spells where we don't record for a few weeks in a row. But we just recorded seven days ago, and in the last seven days, uh, I had a lot of work, so I didn't get to watch much. But I did go to um, Hollywood Forever Cemetery last night, as I've talked to you guys about in the past. Cause they host movie screenings there, and they showed Grease, 
1978's Grease. Oh, that's nice. Last night. Um, Grease is a really special movie to me, uh, as I'm learning about myself, just because uh, my mom was obsessed with it when I was growing up. Her sisters were all obsessed with it when I was growing up. So, like, I was exposed early and often to Grease, uh, like, really early and really often. And um, it used to be a movie that I, like, would roll my eyes at because it was something my mom liked. Uh, but now, like, I am completely, completely uh, susceptible to its charms. Uh, I really, really like Grease. It's a really special movie. Um, I'm actually wearing my, my Rideau High School shirt nice. right now uh, <laughs> that, I, that I bought just because they were showing it at Hollywood Forever. Uh, I bought this two weeks in advance and wore it. Um, and it was a great time. Like, the seeing it with a big, big crowd at, like, an outdoor venue was really cool. Because, like, you know, singing? a lot... There was some singing. Everyone did the arm thing for Grease Lightning, uh, where they, you know, and um, like every time Olivia Newton-John came on came on screen, there was like a big applause, you know. Um, Rest in the peace. director was there too. The director like introduced the movie. I didn't even know he was still around. Uh, I don't. Awesome. That's I don't know crazy. what else he's made. Yeah, um, but it was great. Uh, Grease is awesome. Uh, just really, really delightful. I, a, I agree. Grease is a good time. It's it, and it was certainly another movie that my mom was very fond of as as well. I don't know what yes. it is about that movie that moms just really gravitate to, but <laughs> well, I think anybody who was like, oh, anyone who was like a young person in 1978, that movie made a disgusting amount of money. Yeah. Like it was a phenomenon, and like I have pretty young parents. My mom was like 10 when it came out, so I think she's probably right in the pocket. But um, yeah, again, it's it's funny because again, like I used to roll my eyes in the movie, and like shame on me. Forever rolling my eyes at Greece. It's it's just really good. Yeah, it's, really it's a good time, and I, and I really like it. Hugo would yeah. hate it. I've seen. I'm, sh- I'm sure Hugo would hate it, but <laughs> it's okay. Hugo can be wrong. I don't know. I never watched it as a kid. I watched it later. It's a musical, life, Hugo. It's, like... it's a musical. You, no, no, I, I can't imagine. I, I can't imagine what, what I would think of it if I just, like, saw it cold in my yeah. 20s. But, like, it's it's ingrained in my DNA because I, yeah, I, I saw it from such a young age. I think I so. saw it. I mean, I must have seen bits of it um, when I was younger. But, like, I I, I, haven't really, I actually sat down and watched Grease when I was, like, 19 or whatever. And it's, like... That's I random. <laughs> it's, yeah. I don't know why, but, you know. But it's, it's, it's been a minute fun, since anyway. I sat... Since I sat down and watched it start to finish, it's been a minute, and like, man, it's 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 just really good. I like Grease, good movie. That's the only thing I watched all week, so that's also it for me. the director is called Randall Clayser. Mm-hmm. Not sure yeah. if it's. I don't know what else he did. He did The Blue Lagoon. Okay. With Brooke Shields and Christopher Atkins, if you know that, I've never heard of that. Okay. Nope. He did Honey, I Blew Up the Kids. Great. Oh, movie. nice. Yeah, that was yeah, fun. nice. Flight that of was the underrated. Navigator. Okay. Oh, yeah, that was a big one. He did Big Top Pee Wee, one of the Pee Wee movies, I guess. Mm. And he also did a White Fang movie with a young Ethan Hawke. Wow. Mm. That's, that might actually that's be worth checking so he's out. Worked. <laughs> he's worked post Grease. White yeah. Fang's a good story. Ethan Hawke's a good actor. Maybe that movie's sure. good. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh... all right. So I'm going to go next. Uh, yes, go ahead. I. Uh, completed a uh, Lord of the Rings rewatch of the mm. Lord of the Rings trilogy. I did not get to The Hobbit, unfortunately, before the. Uh, oh no! Oh no! The, I know, guys. Oh, no. How will well. you survive without that? Like... <laughs> I actually, I do like the Hobbit movies. I, they're... What's fun? Go no, ahead. You don't. Come on. <laughs> Real quick. Uh, last year, I was talking to like one of my brother's friends about the Lord of the Rings movies, and, and like my my brother has not seen them, but I have at least seen the original trilogy, and like. 
his brother's my brother's friend was like um, recruiting me to help convince my brother to watch them, and I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, they're actually really good. You think you won't like them? You're not. You think you're under fantasy? They're actually just like undeniably good. Like mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not you're under fantasy, they're just like great, great movies. So you should watch them. And then my brother's friend was like, and the Hobbit movies too, right? And I'm like, hold on, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's not get crazy. Let's so not get crazy. I, watch the watch the original trilogy. I do enjoy the Hobbit, but that's because like I really enjoyed the books, and mm. you know. Uh, the books had lots more singing and silliness and like in, you know, dwarven Hobbit silliness that the Hobbit movies actually had a good amount of, and they did a good job representing. Now I do have a lot of problems with them because they like added stuff to the, to the story that was not necessary. The Hobbit could have been one really good film that has like more, a bit more of a lighthearted tone compared to two movies, the trilogy. You can do two movies. You, but you know the, you want to I mean, have time could. for those grandiose action, you know the, the battles and things like that. He's got to fight a dragon. He's got to fight an army. Give me two movies. There must be desol. There must be desolation. There must be, desolation, there must be yeah. five armies battling. Yeah. So you know th- that takes some time. So I I, I would have done it in two personally, but uh, there's unexpected journeys. <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing just totally unexpected. <laughs> Isn't the Hobbit book like half the? length of less than half. one of the lord of the rings less yeah. books it's a lot shorter it's like and so they made three movies out of a short book that they made one movie each in the lord of the rings trilogy which is crazy right? to me because the lord of the rings okay. trilogy each of those books is two books like literally each book is separated into two books yeah so like they theoretically could have done two movies for each of those and i think that's what we so, get with the extended edition if we're being real more or less yeah. so for the original <laughs> trilogy they made they made three movies out of six books, kind of, kind and then they of, made yeah. three movies out of one book for the Hobbit trilogy. Correct. Yes. Okay. So if, if you're wondering why that trilogy feels a little thin at times, <laughs> yeah. that's why. Okay. <laughs> I'm guessing, like, the second one kind of repeats story beats from the first. It's a whole, it's a whole mess, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah, but now they're Smaug, so, Smaug, you know, yeah. it's different now. Benedict Cumberbatch. I haven't seen any of these, by the way. He was, just... he was Smaug. He was. The... Great, great behind-the-scenes first... footage of him being Smaug, if you haven't seen it. Yes, it's pretty, it's really it's pretty funny. Pretty yeah. cool. Like, his performance <laughs> is pretty cool, as that. But I think the first hour of the first Hobbit movie is actually kind of recaptures the magic of, of you know, the beginning of Fellowship. And then it just drags for the next five hours of movie that they made. It is but I, I still enjoy them uh, yeah. quite a bit because I'm a diehard fan of the Lord of the Rings universe. And I was watching it, of course, in preparation for the new Lord of the Rings TV show. First two episodes are already out, and I thought they were excellent. Screw the Mm -hmm. haters. Uh, (laughs) People are unhappy for a variety of reasons, uh, but I thought it was a good, it's a good quality show. Uh, What are those reasons that people are unhappy with the new show? uh, Racism is one. Uh, Maybe a little bit of a misogyny mixed in for fun? There's certainly a a lot of misogyny. And, okay. but, and it's all guised under that's not how it was in Tolkien's books, is what people say. So, Which I, can be a valid criticism if it weren't so obviously just tied to things that are quote-unquote yeah. woke. Right. <laughs> I, I've, seen, I've seen multiple people post on Twitter like clips from the show being like, hey, look how bad this is. And like, they have motion smoothing on, on their TV. Yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> so... It's like, yeah. Maybe sit off, this one out there. Turn off your motion Rock. smoothing. 
Yes. It makes everything look cheaper. <laughs> if if yes. there's one thing you cannot say about this show is that it doesn't look incredible. Like it looks great. I haven't seen it yet. We we're gonna we were gonna finish. We're, we're finishing Mandalorian season two with Julia that she hadn't seen yet, and after that we're jumping into Lord of the Rings. Um, and it looks great. Just visually, it looks stunning for a TV show. Like, yeah. Galadriel has a. 400 million budget or whatever for the yeah, some outrageous episode. budget it's ridiculous and yeah. it's yeah and it's only eight episodes so yeah, it's crazy uh but uh yeah people are unhappy about uh black people being elves and it's like okay get over it and like, uh because yeah, sure. it really has no bearing like it's not like they make a big deal out of it they, Who gives it's just yeah. he's just a character and you know yeah. and then they're upset that gladriel is super powerful i'm like oh you're telling me that one of the ring, you know, ring bears. One of the elves who had one of the rings. You're surprised that she was a very powerful person. Okay. Yeah. She was Enough. super powerful in the movies as well. Like, I don't, yeah. It's but they're mad. That, they're mad that she's doing action stuff in this one. I'm like, okay. Why? I don't know. It's it, people. People That's are what grumpy. Elves do in this. Well, whatever. It's people stupid. get grumpy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But anyways, enough about that. Uh, the other things I watched this week, I finished my Pixar watch. I watched Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, The Adventure Begins. And you know what? Honestly, it's pretty good. <laughs> like, it, it was all right. <laughs> it is amazing how much of the new Lightyear movie is, like, exactly parallels. Really? This this animated one. There's, like, there's a lot of stuff that is very, very, very similar. Mm. Uh, which could be the reason why Disney and Pixar have decided to bury this movie. Uh, because they want people to just watch Lightyear and not compare the two. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but it was it was actually pretty good. And then I watched A League of Their Own, a little rewatch. But uh, I want to watch the new Love Amazon TV show. Love that movie. Movie is great. love that movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. I'm trying to get Hugo to watch it. I've watched the first. I've watched the first half of the first episode of the new show, and I'll you know I'll, I'll watch more. But like, um, it's okay so far. But it is. It didn't grab you immediately. I, that movie is very special to me. Yeah. So I'm a, I think I, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't decide if that's going to make me like more susceptible to liking the new show or more critical of the new show. And I think watching the first half, first episode, I think it might be make, making me a little more critical of the new show possibly, even though I like the parties involved. Um, I think I'm just being precious about that movie. The other thing I watched uh, this, this last week that I sure Hugo will give no care about but uh, Josh will think it's interesting. I watched Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist, the Manti mm-hmm. Teo uh, documentary. The I didn't what? report that, but I, I did watch that two weeks ago. Uh, I didn't report that in the podcast, but I also watched that. I have no idea what you just said. Yeah. What's Pretty that? G- Manti Teo was a football player at, at the University of Notre Dame while Josh uh-huh. and I were mm-hmm. students there. Yes. Uh, and You overlapped one year with him? I had one year with him. Uh, when he was a freshman. I overlapped three years with him. I was yeah. a, a senior. Yeah. Uh, so I actually had an acting class with him at Notre oh, Dame. Oh, really? Yeah. And and I like I when, the, when this story broke, the story was that uh, uh, Hugo, you got to be paying attention if you're not paying yeah. attention. This this is one of the I wildest am, sports wild. stories Manti, in the last twenty years. Manti Teo was the star of Notre Dame's football team in 2012, a year that they were going on this incredible run and made it all. They the went to the national title game, the national championship yeah. that year. Uh, and early in the season. Manti Teo, on the same day, lost his grandmother, his grandmother passed away, and his girlfriend died. Jesus and Christ. so then he dedicated the rest of the season to them. 
And then from then on, they were on a tear, and Manti Teo was unstoppable. He was one of the finalists for the Heisman Trophy, which is the, the best player in, in college football. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, one of the top stuff. players in the country. Yeah, huge star. The week of uh, before the national title game, story finally breaks from this from Deadspin. I think it was I think it was after the title game. Oh no, it was I right thought. after. It was right after the, yeah. the title game. It was right after the title which, game, which they lost. Which they lost. Which they lost in but, embarrassing fashion. Yeah, and really just tragic. <laughs> but right. uh, the story breaks that Manti Teo's girlfriend did not exist. What? Yeah. yeah. And then so, so they then made all, it up. Well, so there was all this. No. Drama, and that's, he that's did the, not make it up. He did not that's, make it up. That's the, that's the crazy part. He did not make it up. He was a victim mean? of catfishing. He was catfished. <laughs> For like this a was year this, and a half, and this was like this was in 2013. Was... So like catfishing was kind of like a new phenomenon, oh, this and like was a in new 2012. term. <laughs> well, the, the story broke in 2013. Early so 2013, was a, when the story broke. So it was like an online girlfriend. Yes, a long yes. distance girlfriend that he yes. never actually met in person. Who he like, but did FaceTime a few times or whatever. Yeah, it was called FaceTime back then. Um, and they, he got voicemails from this person too. Um. Shit was wild though, How? and like again, this uh, Hugo, you should watch it. It's on Netflix. It's so, only two hours long. And, she and faked, uh, like this person faked being somebody else, and then faked the death of this somebody else. Is that yes. what she did? Yes. Yes. Why? What was? Well, a- apparently, this person like uh, did this more than once to different ah. dudes, and but like never someone with like a national right, profile who was like yeah. legitimately famous across the country. So I think that, uh, I think they got in a little over their head. And so their way out was to fake their own kill death. this fake person they had created. And, but that did not make the problem go away. That made the problem Cause, a thousand cause times worse. People just yes. found her like, or whatever. Yeah. Cause she had yeah. visibility. Uh, right. you should watch the documentary. You should watch the documentary. And I, I, I really it's, do it's, think you should, you know, it's absolutely insane. And you'll love the documentary well, because it really doesn't matter how much you know about football. Of course. At all. No. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. Um, what it is, it is interesting though, because after this happened, but uh, wait, hang on. Th- that po- did he, did he then become a good football player or did his career not? His career did not pan out the way he, he I mean, he, he was, had, he had some good years in the NFL. Right. He still went to the NFL and okay. like, Played several years, His but like trajectory it, was he was going to be one of the best of all time, right? And then after this, he's been ridiculed and memed oh, to God. death. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, like you know, Hugo, this this poor guy. Oh yeah, I can't imagine. Like, it, his name is synonymous with like this story now, and like even like uh, Grizz, I'm sure you heard it a lot. People find out you went to Notre Dame, and suddenly they're making Manti Teo fake girlfriend jokes. Right, like that. <laughs> that was like one of the biggest things about Notre Dame football for like the last decade, pretty much, Jeez. and. The, the story that, like, beca- because it was kind of unbelievable for a lot of people that, like, a major college football star would have a long-distance girlfriend right. he never met. Yeah. And, like, people people found that hard to believe. But, like, having gone to that school at the same time as this guy for three years, I, I bought that immediately. Just based on, like, what his social profile on campus was like. Mm-hmm. I, I bought that. Because he's, he's... He was far from the only football player to have a long-distance girlfriend. Now, granted... Most of them had met their girlfriends, uh, but like yeah, you know, right. because the people come from all over the country. Yeah, yeah, and they yeah, got off to football, and then you go and then, there specifically maybe to play football. So, and when you're yes. playing at Notre Dame and or other major colleges, that is the most important thing to you. You're, of course, that's your life. That's your life. And so, a long yeah. distance girlfriend who is not bugging you to meet up 
or things like that, or hang yeah, out, or hang out yeah. is actually very convenient for yes, <laughs> for a and super also like player. as they cover the documentary, he's from Hawaii and he's Mormon, so he's from like a pretty small tight knit community and seemed a little naive and sheltered. Right. So yeah. like again, I, I knew those things about him ten years ago. So when the story broke and like found out that he was being taken for a ride by somebody, again, I bought that immediately mm. and. People had trouble buying that apparently, but now with the documentary, like hearing him tell the story and hearing the person that catfished him tell their side of the story too. Oh, she's in the documentary. Yes, yes. This sounds uh, does not nuts. come out looking good, in my opinion. He he comes out looking great. I think again, a little naive and sheltered, but like, yeah, but I mean, that's, he, you know, like could he's, be worse. He's very clearly the victim. He was in good yes. faith. That's yeah. yeah, yes. But the reason I mentioned so, that he and I had that acting class together is because when this story broke, people would ask me. Oh, he's in on it, right? Like, hey, how's, how's his acting? They, 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 and, I'm like, and I tell him, I was in acting class with him, and I gotta tell you, there's no way that could be pulling off this level of acting. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't, like, bad, but I was like, like he's, you know, a, yeah, but, yeah. he's a football player in an intro acting class. You're like, well, no. Yeah. And he was a freshman at the time, he was too. A freshman, yeah. So, that's well, great. so anyways, that's what I watched this week. Uh, Hugo, what did you watch? I only watched two films, uh, one of which is also a very important adaptation of one of the most important science fiction uh, sci-fi fantasy books of all time, um, and also not great, and it's Dune. I mm. did a rewatch of David Lynch's Dune from 1984. Um, it doesn't work at all, but <laughs> it's cool, like... Uh, there's just so many little visual ideas and just weird choices that, you know, that they just made up that weren't even in the book. And, um, but make it weirder. Like, Dune is a pretty weird book, and they somehow managed to make something that feels even more weird with some things that are just like, there's weird creatures that don't exist in the book that are supposed to be humans that have like evolved into these weird bug things that float um it's it's a disgusting film that like the 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 the, the baron harkonnen who's the main villain is just just a gross uh creature basically in the film and it and there are some cool dream sequence obviously it's david lynch so there's some wild dream sequences that actually do work really well and there are some moments of oh like there are some moments where you see oh God, like it is still David Lynch. So there, there are some ideas that you know are pretty interesting to see, but the movie as a whole is just like just does does not work. Um, and also, I don't think the film would make any sense at all if you hadn't read the book. Like I, I was following along along fine because I have an understanding of this story based on and having read it, having seen the new movie and all that. Um, but it, it just things happen there's very little like there's a lot of exposition but at the same time they don't explain how and why things happen sometimes and it just moves on to the next scene and it's very confusing to watch but an interesting thing um i was curious to give it a watch again after reading the book and seeing the new movie and i don't know there's something there but not great and also watched bullet train at the cinema hey which i we've both seen that thoroughly enjoyed i don't know uh it seems like Critics didn't like it, but um, I had a great time. It, you know, it is a little too long and sometimes a bit cheesy, but like, I don't know. I had a great time. It's 
there's not much to say about it, but um, it, yeah, it's an action movie think, on a bullet train. Yeah, I think the visuals are <laughs> the visuals are cool. I think uh, Brad Pitt. Whenever they let Brad be funny, he's great at it. He's very good at it. Um, all the characters feel distinct. I think there's something that. I think people were complaining about the kind of MCUification of every thing where every action movie has to be self-aware and making jokes and, and things like that. But yeah, which is fair, that here. which I, I think yeah. is, a, is a fair criticism. But I also think that the characters in the movie are distinct enough where they're not all necessarily making the same types of jokes, um, which, you know, some people may feel differently, but I, I think there's a variety to them that, that allows for it being interesting. Also, like, I don't know, for me, here, here seeing Hiroyuki Sanada, uh, who is the Twilight Samurai, if you haven't seen the Twilight Samurai, which is a great samurai film, um, just, you know, murk people with a katana on a train that's in <laughs> slow motion. I'm like, you know, I, I can't be too critical of that. I just enjoy that too much. Um, so yeah, I had a good time, but, yeah. you know. I think it's a good movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was less of a good movie, but you know, it's it's fine. Josh yeah. is more with the critics. I'm more with yes. people who enjoy movies, I guess. <laughs> okay, <laughs> come on now. But it's like it's an interesting one. It, it is actually an interesting one though, because in it has a three point six on Letterboxd, and Letterboxd usually is more in line with kind of critic scores than it is with user scores on other websites. And on this one, people on Letterboxd seem to enjoy it, and you know, I had a great time, but. Yeah, and we talked about it a little on our last episode, but I think that's. In also, some I grew part... up. I grew up watching a lot of Thomas the Tank Engine. Does that? Yeah. Add I mean, to I, I, in... that that like... added to it for me as well. <laughs> so, but uh, like, I think on, part he's of Percy the... ja- he's Percy Jackson, and he's like, "Oh, you're a Percy," and I'm like, uh, "I get it." Percy part of the reason I think that uh, this movie, and I think we're going to see it more, is that I think more Letterbox is growing in its user count. And the that more is, users who true. who are using it that aren't like diehard film fans, mm-hmm. the more we're going to see the ratings kind of shift a little bit. That's okay. Uh, I mean, I'm hoping that I do think that it'll sorry. influence people that, that Letterboxd will influence people who would otherwise miss like classical great films. Maybe they'll watch it if that you know because they look at the lists or whatever. And I'm I'm hopeful that it'll broaden people's taste rather than Letterboxd become diluted with. I think mainstream person. I think the way Letterbox works is kind of set up for that, where you it pushes you into discovering new films and watching a more a wider variety of things, as opposed to sites like IMDb, where you just see the list of well, oh, these are the best movies, just watch these. And Letterbox kind of you know you start following people and you start discovering stuff. Oh, this director made this. I'm gonna see what else he made. It's like I think it's good. I think discoverability is the best thing about the site, and I yeah. Think you know, if it if it broadens people's horizons, I think that's good. Um, well, speaking yeah, that's of what broadening your horizons, uh, we're going to talk about the fall now. Uh, so, some background stuff from the fall. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, it debuted September 9th, two thousand six. This was at the Toronto International Film Festival (TIFF), as it is known by those in the know. Uh, it did not do well with critics at the, this festival. And uh, as a result of that, had trouble securing a wider release. Uh, I did read one article uh, that pointed out that Roger Ebert was not in attendance at this particular Toronto International Film Festival. And Roger Ebert had been very uh, positive about Tarsem Singh's previous movie, The Cell. 
Mm. And uh, so this article was saying that he believed that if Ebert had been there at the festival and had reviewed it at the festival, that it may have uh, helped, quote-unquote, save the movie. Uh, right. Because, uh, because as as a result, Roger Ebert, when he did review it, uh, he he gave it four out of five. Mm. Uh, four out of four. Four out of four. Excuse me. Four out of four. Uh, yeah. Which and it appears on several of his uh, his best of lists uh, for that time period. And he believes he, he said I, I'm paraphrasing, but the, the quote was something like, "It's a movie that you should see simply because it exists, and it's not." one that you're ever going to see another movie like this or something along those lines. Do you have the exact quote, Josh? You're looking at, <laughs> uh, yes. Give me a second and I'll find it. Keep talking. But, uh, uh, but yeah, so Roger Ebert really liked it. And, you know, he's, uh, the kind of voice in movie criticism that if he says something is good, then other critics may have changed their tune a little bit. It's the type uh, of thing that kind of doesn't exist anymore. Is it? What a critic that has that kind of sway? Yeah. No, I not so much like, anymore. I don't no. think there's oh, yeah, an individual personality that you would go to in that way anymore. Yeah. The exact quote, Grace, is pretty much exactly what he said. He said, uh, The Fall filmed in four years in 28 countries uh, and has made a movie that you might want to see for no other reason than because it exists. There will never be another like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's pretty high praise uh, for but a man also, who does not normally mince words. <laughs> The very next, the very next sentence in the review is uh, the fa- the fall is so audacious that when Variety calls it a vanity project, you can only admire the man vain enough to make it. So apparently, Variety kind of trashed it, and that Tarsum Singh suggests that might have been why it had trouble finding distribution for a year and a half. Yeah, after it premiered at, at TIFF in '06 and didn't get a release till May of '08. And and that is when it finally got its uh, theatrical run. Uh, David Fincher and Spike Jones uh, teamed up to secure its theatrical run uh which is why it is it, it, it says on the box and on posters that david fincher and spike jones present mm-hmm. and in the opening credits and in the opening yeah. credits uh, present the fall uh they didn't have anything to do with the actual production of the movie at all but they were the ones who got it to theaters uh so uh shout out to those guys who i, I believe were both fans of you know pretty absolutely pretty positively uh in the yes. first place uh so uh, but yeah, so that was May 30th, 2008 is when it finally uh, came out. I have it May 9th, 2008, but either way. Well, I could be wrong. I, I had September 9th, 2006. Maybe I got the, the nines mixed up. I don't know. Uh, but in any case... I have, it, I have it on nine screens on May 9th in 2008 and expanded as wide as 111 screens on June 6th. Okay. Which is not so, very wide at all. No, not, not a super wide release. That's, that's tiny release, yes. Uh, especially when you consider the budget of the film was $30 million and its total box office was $3.7 million. Uh, at two, 2.3 of that being domestic. Yeah, so uh, a total bomb, even within its uh, limited release. But it was written directed by Tarsum Singh. Uh, there were other writers on the project as well. Yes. Go Do ahead. you know who one of them was? Please go. Dan Gilroy. Dan we're all a fan of, I imagine, right? Mm-hmm. He wrote and directed a little movie called uh, Nightcrawler in 2014. Which is with fantastic, Jake yeah. And he was a, a big screenwriter in like the 90s, 2000s. He wrote uh, one of the Bourne movies. Um, well, he, yeah, he's a, he wrote the bad one, but 
the bad one. Well, his brother, his brother Tony Gilroy, wrote the all three of them. I'm pretty sure, and he also wrote and directed Michael Clayton. Good family, yeah, the Dan good and family, Tony Gilroy, Gilroy family. Yes. Uh, yes, but uh, yeah. So uh, Tarsum Singh also primarily funded the movie himself. He did secure funding from other people, but like the vast majority of the funding for the movie was his own money, uh, which is part of why uh, this movie was in production for so long. It took four years to film. Uh, and every scene was filmed on location. And as uh, Josh mentioned from Roger Ebert's review, it was filmed in 28 countries uh, over those four years. Uh, so that is <laughs> that is a lot of expense <laughs> for setting up all those different uh, shots and, and, and scenes, but I personally think it's absolutely worth it. Uh, before this, uh, before, you know, the cell uh, and, and the fall, Singh had primarily worked in advertising. He directs commercials and music videos for for most of his career. Uh, and in preparation for this movie, he reportedly only took jobs that would take him to places he wanted to scout for locations for this movie, which I think is pretty cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's tight. <laughs> uh, and another thing that I personally love about this movie is that everything about it was done practically uh, with computers only being used for color correction and treatment, which is, you know, pretty impressive. Josh, you seem skeptical. Well, I remember reading that too on IMDb in like, you know, 2008 or whatever. I read it in an article from Empire. Sure. (laughs) What does that mean exactly? Like, I get that they're shooting on location, so that all of their locations are not green screen or anything like that. I buy that, and that's really cool. You can look at the list of filming locations in Wikipedia, and there are some like places you don't believe would exist in the world that actually exist. That's cool. That part I buy. But like when the guy like lays back on arrows, that's not computer aided at all. I mean, it's like a better when a nails. guy gets stabbed through the chest. You know, there's like I, I don't know. Like I, I was just kind of curious if like how that would have been done practically. I mean, I agree. And I, and I will tell you, I am skeptical of that because the thing that always stands out to me is there's a moment in the movie where the mystic is having like a map appear on his skin. Right. Mm-hmm. I guess that could have been stop motion, but I doubt that. Yeah. So like it could have been, looks like, there's ways good. that it, there's ways it could be done practically, but sure. it looks too good. Yeah. And there's like a little bead that moves under his skin. And I'm like, okay, now how are you doing that practically? Yeah. It, and so, I think what they mean is probably we did not use any green screen for... Which he has said Which is incredibly impressive. Tarsum Singh has said that since then, is that, you know, that's more what he's talking about. But, you know, either way, I I, I do wonder why it was printed in so many, like, articles and so widely spread. I mean, is it just, you know, to, like, try to, like, talk up the film? That, like, oh, like he's bloviating a little bit? (laughs) Well, that's kind of kind of something about this movie that I frustrating might be the wrong word, but like I first saw it in two thousand eight when like inter- pieces of trivia like that did float around the internet, not necessarily sourced, and so like mm. it, it, I I wanted to learn more about this, and I felt like I couldn't really ever learn enough because like there was always just like this vague stuff like that that I couldn't like verify, and I don't know, and maybe it was part of the fact that like this movie's kind of lesser known so i don't know i just i kept trying to like learn more about it it was just like hard to learn stuff about this movie i'll admit it it is one of those things that maybe like the legend of the movie is part of its appeal yeah and so like yeah like the fact that we can't ascertain 
the fact of you know where computers used, uh, and then there's some other yeah. like, like factoids that I'm going to give you all here in a bit that it's like okay, but was it really like that, or is that like the legend of this movie, the the legend yeah. of the fall? <laughs> That's a funny joke because there's a movie you see called Legends no, of the th- Fall. <laughs> it's funnier when you explain it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's one of those films that I think would be very interesting to see a documentary made about its production history. But it, because it, it, you know, because it's so not obscure important. and unavailable, <laughs> you know, it's it's hard for, for that to happen. You know, but yeah, uh, it would be but very so, interesting. I would be very curious about it at least. Uh, they were very committed to doing as much of the film practically as possible. Is basically what the important part is. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one fun factoid was that uh, uh, Tarsum Singh actually went to homeowners in Jodhpur, India, which uh, is seen in one of the scenes. It's a city where all the buildings are blue, the blue mm-hmm. city. Uh, and he went to homeowners and business owners and provided them with blue paint to refresh the paint on their, their buildings so that the blue would be more vibrant for his movie. Which, again, how much like did he do that like one time or was yeah. it like a did he go to thing? one guy just did he go to one guy yeah <laughs> i don't know but that that is another thing that you know was you know repeatedly appeared in stories about this movie uh the next thing i wanted to mention from the background was that the scenes in the hospital uh and this movie takes place in in two parts essentially one story going on inside a hospital and one story going on in a fantastical world uh, the scenes in the hospital were filmed prior to the adventure scenes. Uh, during filming at the hospital, at the hospital, the then largely unheard of actor Lee Pace, who is now a you know prominent movie star, uh, he stayed in uh, a wheelchair at all times while on set, uh, with almost none of the cast and crew knowing that he could actually walk. Uh, apparently, uh, the the reasoning behind this was they wanted to have the interactions from the other actors and the way that they, you know, treated Lee Pace's character, Roy in the movie, they wanted it to feel like the way you treat someone who is a paraplegic, uh, as particularly they wanted the little girl to, to, by the way, a lot of actors who's seem to only have done this. Yeah. As well in the film, like not, (laughs) yeah, not fame, like, you know, no, no other really famous actors out of this movie. Uh, that's an, that's another thing. It's like I we can talk about this more later, but like it, it, I keep coming back to like the idea of like how little I know about this movie yeah. because like when it came out, like the internet internet wasn't as like I mean it was only fifteen years ago. It wasn't like the internet was that much different, but like a little bit. It's uh, it different enough. Bit different. Yeah, different enough. And like I remember thinking like, oh, who is this Tarsum Singh guy? What is this movie? Who are these people who made it? And like. There just wasn't a lot out there on them, and, like, I never thought in the last 15 years to, like, research more about Tarsum Singh and, like, the cinematographer and the editor, and, like, the reason I don't know much about him is that they didn't do much outside of this. Yeah. Like, no one involved in this movie did much outside of this. The little girl that plays Alexandria, I Googled her to see what came of her. I found her LinkedIn, because she now works in marketing in England. Yeah. And, like, good for her. That's great. But, like, (laughs) you know, uh, you know... This movie, it's it's kind of like a miracle that this movie exists because a lot of really disparate factors just kind of came together and made what I think is a really great movie and then just like went their separate ways and continued their lives outside of movies. So, so it's wild. Tarsum Singh uh, and his 
and the cinematographer, uh, whose name I have further in my notes, uh, one second, uh, Colin Watkinson. Colin Watkinson, there you uh, go. Was the cinematographer. Yeah. He, all, Colin Watkinson also works in music videos. That's his yes. his bread and butter as well. Uh, and the uh, only other things that they, like, anyone else in this movie worked on were other things with Tarsum Singh, basically. Like, they yeah. did, well, he, he did the movie uh, The Immortals. He did, yes. Uh, Colin Watkinson has shot three movies as far as I know, but he also shot most of The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. And he won an Emmy for cinematography for The Handmaid's Tale, so just note his uh, his credentials. Yeah, like, we know he's, we know he's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is kind <laughs> of mind-blowing. It's one of those things, like, you know he's good. Why isn't he Why isn't he done more things? And this is exactly what you're talking about. But we'll, I, we'll talk about more about some of the other key players in the fall uh, behind the scenes later on. Uh, but, yeah, uh, the uh, at one point, I was telling you about Lee Payson in the wheelchair. At one point... A makeup artist walked in uh, and saw him standing and apparently almost passed out from shock. Uh, and then uh, at the end of filming in the hospital, uh, Payson Singh finally revealed to Katinka, the, the girl who plays uh, Alexandria, and the remaining cast and crew that were on set that did not know. And he just kind of stands up and everyone is like, oh, they all start applauding. There's like a behind the scenes video of this the moment. The power of cinema. Uh, and I think that's really cool. I mean, like method acting is you know has some people really hate the idea of method acting and uh other times you see really good results i don't know if it was worth it necessarily but i am impressed by the commitment to have him stay in a wheelchair there's also an element of working with this child who only did this and wasn't really even an actor essentially in their life that getting a more authentic interaction with them was probably the, the one of the reasons why they did this and not just... And it was. That was the reason the they gave. Uh, yeah. But it, it's still, you know, an it, impressive you, amount you of... You also commitment. have a, six, a six-year-old a six who's never acted before who... Yeah. English is not her first language. Exactly. Like, g- hyping up the verisimilitude for her sake probably was a priority, I imagine. Uh, and I think you have in the outline, Grizz, they shot in, in sequence for her, yeah. for her, for the sake of her. They, they shot in sequence uh, in the hospital... Uh, because for the sake of her performance, uh, and also in some part because they wanted the passage of time for this character, or, or the passage of time in this movie to be believable in the characters. And with children, uh, the difference between you know these you know, whatever like six weeks, you know two months, whatever it was of shooting, mm-hmm. uh, the, there is there can be a remarkable amount of growth in a very short amount of time for children at this age. So yeah. in order to have it all flow smoothly, they actually filmed everything in sequence. Which is uh, something that, that they do with with child actors. Child actors all time. the time, Like yeah. E.T., for example, is another one that was filmed in sequence for the kids to, you know, have a, a normal but experience in that they can understand. I, I think it works. It, it really is important for this movie because uh, the actress who played Alexandria, Katinka Untaru, uh, is Romanian and mm-hmm. English was a second language. And, you know, so at the beginning of the movie, her English is, you know, not great, but, and it's still not fantastic by the end, but it like, you can, it see, improves. You can see a market improvement, which would yeah. make sense as this girl is spending more time talking with people in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I do, I do think it actually serves them very well. And while other movies do it 
uh, in this case, I think it really uh, stands out as, as an important thing. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say about uh, Pace being in the wheelchair was, because uh, I think this is kind of funny, uh, the actor who was set to play Katinka's father, who appears in the story version of the world, uh, was he was billed as the bandit. And his part in the script seemed to be very long. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he was very excited about that. So Tarsum Singh had to explain to him. So one of the, you know, he had to explain to this man that uh, his part was actually going to be much, much shorter in the movie because they were going to reveal later that Lee Pace could walk and he was going to be the one actually doing all those, <laughs> all those things. <laughs> so I kind of feel bad for that guy. But uh, uh, Sucks for him, but, you know. <laughs> uh, Emil Hostina was his name I keep calling him that guy I should at least give him credit <laughs> oh the other thing I, I just thought was like a, a, a smart bit of filmmaking uh, during the hospital scenes frequently uh, they would shoot through hospital curtains they put holes in hospital curtains and hide the cameras behind them and hide the, cast, the, the crew behind it so that the interactions between uh, Roy and uh, Alexandria would be organic and real and you know so that that way she would kind of like lose herself and just kind of be a child uh, in this situation rather than trying to focus on what the director is asking her to do in those scenes uh, well so that that's my my background stuff on on this movie uh, so I, I do want to ask as we always do kind of at this point what did y'all think uh, had you seen this before have you seen any of Tarsum Singh's other movies uh Hugo, what do you got? I don't, I thought it was great. It's uh, it's one of the most unique things I've ever seen, and I Sorry. really appreciated it for that. It's you know it's Lee Pace is great. Like he has genuinely good, like solid acting scenes, and like the movie built around him is, you know, at the same time tragic, but also extremely colorful and beautiful and and humorous even at times and it this concept of him telling the story and how seeing how the story changes with his mindset and it, with the input of, of this young child is just such a cool idea and uh and yeah as a, and as we said the location you know doing 28 loca- 28 countries definitely paid off cuz anytime they have a a new location it's just incredible it's like unbelievable that these places could exist in the way that they are shown in the film i i have no idea how they pulled it pulled this off for 30 million at the time with you know no distribution yet it's like i this movie's crazy i think josh said it best before when he said it's it's ridiculous that this film that this film even exists and it's it's awesome like i don't know i have no idea what this guy made other than this i haven't seen anything else by him but you know is anything I mean, that he made as considered as good as this or is it just well i mean kind well of is it hard to is say. this considered good like no but there... i mean like this <laughs> i feel like this i have i have heard of this as it as this cult classic thing that has at yes. least a reputation uh you know but some people don't like it is but that's nice. you know the rest so, that he's done like when i look at it at the list of movies it's just stuff that i have you know haven't even heard about yeah so. so he did uh immortals which is a you know a big action film uh which is not as well received even as mm. the fall 
Uh, people liked the cell. People I liked think. the cell, and that's why yeah. why uh, um, the fall. But you know, was going to be something big. That was Jennifer Lopez, uh, mm-hmm. Vince Vaughn, I think Vince Vaughn and Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, hmm. So, it, uh, but I again, think I've seen the first five minutes of that movie, and then I turned it off because it scared me because I was like twelve mm. or something. So apparently, the cell is one of those movies that people either really, really love or really, really hate. And so, like, it ends up mm. with a lower rating actually than The Fall. But people, you know, uh, it did have some very loyal uh, fans, which made people I th- excited. I think for the cell is more. The cell is probably more widely seen than The Fall because of Jennifer Lopez and Vince Vaughn, etc. But uh, I think the people who've seen this, seen The Fall, uh, are more pro. Are more positive than people on the, are on the cell, I think, for the most part. Uh, then the other two movies that uh, Tarsum Singh has done were Mirror, Mirror, which had Julia Roberts. Uh, sure. So pe- people thought that was going to yeah, be... That was like a Snow White movie, right? It yeah, was. It was Lil- Lily Collins and Julia Roberts. Uh, mm-hmm. And actual cannibal Army Hammer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Alleged cannibal <laughs> Army Hammer. Uh in Mirror Mirror, it did not. That was not well received. And then he did a movie called Selfless, Self Slash Less, starring Ryan Reynolds, which I had not heard of. Uh, which and it it's got a thirty four critic score on on uh, Meta on Metacritic, uh, so not well received. <laughs> but yeah, so the fall is the only one that uh, at least has a a fairly good rating overall. I think it's like seven point eight or seven point uh, on IMDb. Uh, yeah, it, so it has a 4.0 average on Letterboxd, which is pretty right. high. Yes, very high. I mean, 4.0 is you are in the conversation of making it on the top 250 list. Yeah, with, yeah. for Letterboxd. Uh, and I think I think that it's it's little seen, but beloved, or you know, maybe not beloved, but like I think there's some staunch defenders of this movie, and I think that. Grizz, I'm curious to hear how you came across it, um, because it it is really like a quintessential example of like what this podcast is for where it's like something that somebody sees and it's so little seen and little known about that you immediately want to like show it to people and uh, tell people about it. And that's exactly how I saw it in 2008. I was working at a school at the time and one of my coworkers came in one day and said, uh, there's this movie playing at the indie theater and you got to go see it. Cause it's, it's incredible. It's insanely good. And, um, I don't think he'd come in and like recommended a movie before. So the fact that he just came in one day and like, out of out of the blue, like came in hot recommending this. Um, it left an impression on me. I don't think I went to go see it in the theater, but like I, you know, added it to my list. And so a few months later, at college, um, you know, I was still getting Netflix DVDs in the mail at the time. Uh, I I put this on the list and I, I saw it that way. And much like that coworker of mine insisted that we all go see the fall, I got all of my friends in the dorm together down the hall and made them watch the fall with me. <laughs> um Including Alex Griswold, Grizz, who's a, f- a friend of both of ours, who uh, I remember, even though this was 15 years ago, I remember him derisively laughing in the third act and saying, this movie was good, and then it became an episode of Robot Chicken, which is in reference to the stop <laughs> the motion section. <laughs> the claymation stop motion section. Which upset me, because I liked the movie, and I wanted them to like it too, and he just like took the wind out of the movie sales with that comment, yeah. but it was also kind of accurate. So, But also, that is, Alex is a very witty guy extremely witty yes he is a a writer professionally uh so (laughs) that serves him well his Um, his sharp tongue has served him well 
But yeah, so how did, <laughs> but that, that... How did you find it, Grizz? I think is yeah. So uh, when I first graduated college, I, and I you know just I was just looking for work, I took a job at uh, GameStop, just working part time while I was trying to find you know an actual career. Uh, and uh, it turns out I I did very well at GameStop, and I, I you know had a good time while I was working there. For, I worked there for several years uh, after I became a store manager. Uh, but when I first started, my boss, his name is J.C. DePina. Shout out to J.C. Uh, and he's a big movie buff. And you know, like he would he told me like that he watches a movie every night before he goes to bed. And I was like, that's insane. Like Tom Cruise. No one watches that many movies. Mm-hmm. I, well, Tom Cruise does apparently. Yeah, well, and so I, I thought I thought he was you know exaggerating. Little, of course, that is pretty. That's admirable. Yeah, that, that much commitment. Yeah, but I do know it's possible. As you know, <laughs> I, I I had a year where I watched over a movie a day uh, for average. So like you know, it's definitely doable. <laughs> uh, but anyways, he's a big movie buff, and uh, he he was my boss, and I just started working there. And another one of my friends, Jennifer, who Jennifer Van Damsel, who's been on the show, uh, Jen also started working at GameStop that same week, and we hit it off. And uh, so, her, her boyfriend at the time, who's you know now her husband, uh, and JC and I, we got together at the bar and wrote up a list of movies that we wanted each other to see, uh, because we all were you know talking about oh we're all big movie fans and you know. I'm going to introduce you to some movie that you haven't seen. Like I made them watch uh, Gettysburg, mm. uh, which was a which was a made for TV movie, but I thought it was incredible. I have, there's some great speeches in that movie that I really loved, and I I made them watch that. And uh, one of my other friends made us watch Basketball Diaries because he really loved Basketball Diaries. And then when we watched it, we realized none of us like Basketball Diaries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so we had this list of movies, and The Fall was one of JC's suggestions. And so we watched that, and I was I was blown away, guys. I was, you know, it's, I mean, me too. It's yeah. just so beautiful, uh, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, normally I'm Mister Positivity. Like, you know, I like movies that have happy endings, and you know, and all that that stuff. And this movie was kind of sad, and you know, a little tragic. Uh, it has a happy ending, though. But it, I mean, yes, it does have a happy ending. But like, yeah, it, at the time, it I. If you had told me that I was going to watch a movie about a guy who's trying to trick, he's trying to kill himself, trying to kill himself, yeah. and trying to trick a little girl into helping him do it, I that would have been way too dark for me. But I watched it because you know my friend, we all agreed we're going to watch all the movies on this list, uh, and I just absolutely loved it. It is, is I think it's a a great story. Uh, I think that it's fun, it's exciting, and I I was just very lucky to have it introduced to me. And so that's why I, I wanted to uh, have us watch it on the podcast here, uh, yeah. particularly since I, I knew Hugo hadn't seen it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that that's how I the came to it. perfect movie for this podcast, I think, you know? Again, the quintessential recommendation. Yeah. Underseen movie. So uh, we're going to go into just some of the like things about the movie. I'm not going to like go through the whole story or anything but uh, I did want to talk about the plot a little bit. As we said before, it takes place in a hospital, and the plot is in the hospital that uh, Katinka uh, is playing, who plays Alexandria. Alexandria is in the hospital with a broken uh, 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 collarbone, arm. Mm-hmm. yes, uh, or something like that. She's like, you know, um, whole arm, whatever, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Whole arms in a cast, uh, and also in the hospital is 
Roy. And Roy is a stuntman who uh, apparently uh, tried to do a very impressive stunt in an effort to impress a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, An actress, An actress, an actress on the film. Uh, By the way, this is 1915, by the way. So he's in silent movies. These are silent movies. And so, you know, he he does a a stunt where he jumps off a bridge onto a horse uh, and it doesn't go well. And uh, he becomes uh, paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, And he is devastated by this especially in no part in no small part because he's paralyzed but also because it didn't didn't work the girl leaves him for another actor uh and so he he is trying to kill himself and uh to do so he is trying to get his hands on morphine pills and he he's trying to get this little girl to go and get them for him and that's that's the plot is in the hospital this innocent girl uh, is just wanting to hang out with Roy because he seems nice and, and he's going to tell her a story uh, and he just wants her to, to go get these pills. The story that he's telling the little girl is the other half of the movie and it is this sort of story you tell a child where it's a grand epic but you're definitely making stuff up as you go and mm-hmm. you're pulling things from your own life. Uh, and from know. the real world. And yeah, exactly. So you know he's uh, he is the story starts out and it's very much paralleling the story of the movie he was just on, uh, and he then the girl starts to want the story to be different, and so she keeps saying, "No, oh, let's do this." And so then he has to change the story to keep her interested. Uh, I think it's a really interesting plot contrivance to have this uh, story as the crux of why this girl is going to do th- what he wants. Uh, but I also know that other people I've shown this movie to have said that it can be a little hard to follow at times uh, because hmm. the girl is giving input and it's changing things in the story and you're, the world that you're seeing in the story is her imagination of it. Yeah, we're seeing her interpretation of the story that Roy is telling her. Yes. That's the visual that we see for most of the bulk of the movie. And so and it's like, things... it, oh, it's ahead. not only that, but it's also already such a weird, fantastical, fantastical. story. Like, yeah. It's like, you know, it's an Indian guy, uh, Super Mario, uh, Zorro, and <laughs> uh, Charles Darwin go on an, and a freed slave go on an adventure. And when they get off this island where they start off, they meet this guy who live comes out of a tree. Comes out of a tree, and a he's burned like burned tree. And he's like, yeah. "Hey, it's okay. All the birds are safe inside me." Yes. What? And, uh, <laughs> yes. And then doesn't speak again for the rest of the movie, and just just is very good at combat, though. For well, some reason. Well, he says googly googly googly. He does say googly googly googly, but that's yes. it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like it's nuts. When I was watching the movie at the beginning, I was like. Because I think when it starts, it's not entirely clear what's real and what isn't. And then very quickly it becomes the contrivance of we're explaining this is a story. But then at the beginning, there are moments where it just cuts to the fantastical world before we are very much completely introduced to the dynamic between the characters. And so it starts and you're like, oh, OK, Darwin is in this and he's wearing this big red fur coat and this Sikh guy who has this crazy gray, green outfit and and they start going on this adventure but somehow it doesn't 
I feel like it doesn't completely matter if you completely follow every little bit of the plot. And some of my favorite parts are when she starts intervening and we see the characters in the story say what Roy and, and Alexandria are saying in the hospital. And they speak with a different voice and, you know, she's like, oh, why does he speak like that? Because he's your father. Well, no, but he doesn't speak like that. And he changes accent. Like, whenever she intervenes and the story changes is some of my favourite bits because I think it's always cool and creative. And, I, you know, there are moments where it doesn't completely make sense because it doesn't. It's a guy telling a story that he's making up as he goes along and, you know, whatever. I think it especially... falls apart's the wrong word but like the story within the story that like the fantastical imagination part of it i think it gets i think it goes a little downhill after the the game is given up in the main storyline and the hospital storyline once we learn that he that she he is trying to get her to bring him morphine which is about halfway point or so a little after the halfway point once we learn that the imagined storyline becomes like a lot less interesting i think and maybe maybe even by design because by that point like we get what this is mm-hmm. yeah and like this is something he's just making up as he goes along for ulter- ulterior motives like he's not just telling a story to entertain this girl and, it, and like it th- i think the story being, suffers for it it stops the story he's being an entertaining adventure because before then it was i'm gonna entertain this girl and us as the audience are entertained by this fantastical story that he's telling but it stops being an adventure and it becomes as tragic as the actual story of the movie of what is actually happening in the real world and you know i think it's a cool switch i I do agree that that the sense of adventure that you feel in the first half is kind of lost after a while but it i think it makes sense for what the story is doing yeah and i and i do really think that's by design and i can see why that might not work for some people and maybe it's just me as a you know defender of this film uh but i think that it actually fits so well with where Roy is at mentally that mm-hmm. he's like, I'm just prolonging this story because I need her to get the pills. So he's filling time. Yeah. And so, yeah, the story becomes a little less interesting, a little less fleshed out. But I think it does like kind of come together in the end when like they have their, which I'm sure we'll get to their like crying exchange when she's laid up in the hospital. Um, and like Roy's character is dying in the story that he's telling. And then, he makes the decision to not kill off his character. I think that's great stuff. Yeah. And like, that's like a, a good payoff. But like the, in between the, the morphine reveal and that scene, it gets a little shaggy, I thought. But yeah, so still good. the during the story, like, like, like we said, he's trying to get her to get morphine. The first time he does, he writes out the word morphine on a piece of paper and asks her to like, can, can you read, read English? This? And she says, yes. Yeah. And she reads it. M.O.R. You know, she struggles on a few of the letters. Uh, and then M-O-R-P-H-I-N-3. And Roy has decided that's good enough that, you know, that she confused the E for a three. That's good enough. Uh, and she goes off to get the pills and brings back the bottle with only three mm. pills in it because that's what Roy asked for. Uh, I, I wanted to highlight this moment in particular uh, because this was not in the original script. Uh, when they started the production of the film, uh, Katinka actually messed up the line and did, in fact, read it as a three. Mm. And they liked it so much that they reworked the next scene. And again, because they're shooting in sequence, they can do this. They reworked the next scene so that 
when she goes to get the pills, she only brings back three, uh, which is it's that level of organic nature that this that the hospital scenes have that I really really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that it there's a, a weird sort of like connection that you have to the story because you want to hear the story. You're very interested in the story the same way that Alexandria is. Uh, but you're also, as an adult, aware of the emotions that Roy is, is is feeling. And you kind of feel conflict because, you know, you want Roy to tell this, this cool story. Uh, but you also know that Roy is manipulating this child. And, like, are you, like, yeah. are you supposed to like Roy? And you find yourself, you do like Roy. Because, mm-hmm. Ale- oh, because Alexandria like Roy. Yeah, likes sure. Roy. And, yeah. uh, and so I just think that that emotional conflict that the movie generates in you as you're watching it is something that I've, I really found quite powerful. Um, did you guys have anything you wanted to add in particular about the plot? Yeah. Um, I want to read the last part of Ebert's review. Um, it says... Alexandria Alexandria regards with equal wonder the reality she lives in and the fantasy she pretends to. It is her imagination that creates the images of Roy's story, and they have a purity and power beyond all calculation. Roy is the perfect storyteller, and she is the perfect listener, and together they build a world. Um, and I just want—I wanted to flag that because, like, I—I I like stories that are about stories. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this this is a movie about storytelling, and. Uh, uh, I guess storytelling is a means to an end to some extent, but also like story t- uh, listening to stories is a way to process the world around you, which is what Alexandria is doing. And like, in a way it's what Roy does, like kind of by accident, he kind of processes what happens to him and like decides not to kill himself because of a- Alexandria's investment in his story, both the story he's telling and the story of his life, basically because he's put so much 20. of himself into the story. But yes. there's also a literal sense to it. Like the, the same way the story changes because she intervenes, his decision to kill himself changes because she intervenes. So she, by changing the story, yeah. she changes his outlook on the world. It's and and a scene that I already referenced, like that that all comes to a head in the scene when she's let up in the hospital and he's like talking to her, crying, and he is telling the story to her, and like his character in the story is dying, and he kills and off she is everybody like cr- as well. He kills off everybody in the story, and she is crying, begging him, please don't kill him in the story, and what she's really saying is, please don't kill yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not a difficult... I think she even actually says, yeah. don't die. Like She she kind of goes back and forth between don't kill the character in the story and also don't kill yourself. Which is so cool, because that, that means that her character, this six-year-old... has understood. Has, she gets it. She gets it. She knows what's happening. Yeah. And, God, that's powerful. And <laughs> and he does he does tearfully say, fine, I won't. And then in the story, he's telling his character suddenly opens his eyes and like easily and triumphantly and walks out. You know, comes out. Yeah, uh, um, that whole sequence is great. Is is incredible, you know, to me uh, as he's killing off all the characters because uh, these characters, like we said, are all very dynamic and distinct, and the way they are all written out of the story just matches so well with the characterization that they've been given, despite it being a a, a momentary decision by Roy mm-hmm. that I'm ending this story. Everyone's going to die because he's, he's so tragically depressed. Uh, and, uh, I, I think that there are some of the, some of the coolest visuals happen during these sequences where all these characters are dying. Uh, 
I, the arrows the, that I mentioned. The earlier. arrows that you mentioned earlier, uh, where mm-hmm. the guy gets shot by a, a, you know a dozen arrows and then he falls back on them like a bed of nails. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darwin, you know, Charles off Darwin, the building, yeah. Poor, which poor I did want. I did want to mention. Get shot. I did want to mention the character of Darwin in particular because, like, I think it's very funny that uh, this character that is being cast as Darwin in the story is an orderly at the hospital uh, mm-hmm. and doesn't look a thing like Charles Darwin. And <laughs> I had one of my friends, you know, ask, why is Charles Darwin wearing a ridiculous coat and, <laughs> and doesn't look anything like Charles Darwin? And of course it's because this little girl doesn't know who Charles Darwin of course. is. Yeah. <laughs> so she has, she has, she can put anyone she wants into it. And I think that is a very clever thing. And then, you know, his brief description on who Charles Darwin is, is how she fabricates like, Okay, yeah, he's a guy, and he's got a he's got a monkey, and yeah. uh, and what if he looked really... like that guy that I pass every yeah. day while coming here? You know, <laughs> uh, I just think that uh, in particular that that was a funny moment to me because you know someone's like that doesn't make any sense. Why why is Charles Darwin not like Charles Darwin? Because it's it's her world. Uh, yeah. But yeah, by so... the way, played by Leo Bill is the only other person who is an actor outside of this. Uh, other than Lee Pace, I yeah, hmm. that I mean, had a working that career. Acting? Like he's been in a bunch of movies. He was in Cruella. He was in Alice in Wonderland. Twenty Eight Days Later, The Girl with Dragon Tattoo. And not major roles, but like so those are good movies, though. Yeah, yes. it's funny uh, yeah. though that him specifically is the one guy who I've seen in other things. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the next thing I want to talk about was the cinematography because that is the thing that I think. Is, it's, it's the hardest to explain why this movie is so special. Because, like, yeah, the story's awesome. I love the story. And I love all the filmmaking techniques that they use. But there's I can't give you words to justify how beautiful this movie is. And it's because of the practical you know, shooting. They went to all these real locations. He sought out the most ridiculous... countries. The most ridiculous, yeah. elaborate buildings all over the world. And t- shoots in them for you know five minutes or less in yeah. some cases. Uh, there is just there is a moment, just because they're beautiful. <laughs> there's a moment early in the film where they start from this desert place and then they get a hint to where this uh, odious person who is the the villain who isn't really a villain is just this figure that they imagine is a villain. Is well, I mean, there's... in the story, he's done some pretty bad things. Yes, but it's like he's not a character. <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. He just shows up at the end, and it turns out it's the actor that the the girl had gone off to Roy's in the world. Yeah, girlfriend. Um, yeah, and but like, there's a montage where they go to like 15 different countries to, sh- and there's what 15 seconds of footage in these beautiful locations, and that's it. And then they go on to the next place. It's it's pretty impressive. It's incredible, and it's like yeah. this is why I think Roger Ebert said you'll never see another thing like this, and and why Vanity Fair said. Uh, this is a vanity yeah. you know, movie because it is, it's outrageous. It's ridiculous. No, yeah. no, you know, Disney's not going to pay for you it, to do. There's that. no reason <laughs> there's, you know, to the, in the eyes of, you know, an executive or somebody who's looking at this practic you know, in terms of, you know, practicality, there is literally no reason to do this. You could just, you know, whatever CGI a few places or like, take archive footage of locations or at least or like 
find different places in the same location where you are that look different. No, they just go all over the world. And it makes it special, though. It it seems like a ridiculous thing to do, but it's not. It works. And I just wanted to shout out that this movie uh, really does stick with me because of the visuals. Uh, the like The locations are incredible, but also the way they frame some of the shots are like really just they're they're perfect for those moments mm-hmm. uh and the reason i wanted to, uh, i wanted to ask this question here is that like i said colin watkinson and tarsum singh largely worked in commercials and music videos and i wanted to know if there was anything that you could think about from music videos that you think lends itself to this kind of cinematography do you guys have any thoughts on that <sighs> I mean, there's, like, some creative dissolves. I don't know if it's, like, a music video thing, but just, like, the, uh, I don't know, like, the match cuts. Like, it, it's a, um, it's a visual, it's establishing a visual language, and I guess you kind of have to do that in music videos because you only have, like, three or four minutes or whatever. Um, again, I wouldn't, like, some of the dissolves in this, like, the you know, from a butterfly to a butterfly island in Fiji, and from, like, the stony-faced priest to, like, this landscape with mountains. That and, you know, roughly they, look they, like It's face. a match cut. Yeah. That looks like its face. I don't see those and immediately think, oh, music videos. But, like, knowing these guys made music videos, I kind of, guess, can see how, like, they, they clearly think visually in, like, very unique ways that would behoove them in making a music video. But I don't know. Well, and I was kind of thinking that same sort of deal is that uh, music videos transition from location to location very mm-hmm. quickly oftentimes. Especially like when you think of like songs that are like upbeat and fun, like they're having a party around the world, so like they're they're you know moving from one place to another very very quickly, and uh, I think that that kind of lends itself in some ways to this where they are moving from location to location, but they also have to have interesting transitions that aren't just like snap cut to the next location because mm-hmm. yeah. in that sort of montage you'd be you know it'd be very jarring to you know. And go from one place to the next that uh, abruptly. There's also something about what if we just took these cool-looking people in cool costumes and put them against this background that is a real place that doesn't even seem real. And you know, to some extent that is does feel like a music video type of idea. Like, you know, whatever Beyoncé doing a whole music video inside the Louvre where it's like that seems completely unnecessary, but like there is something to it that is impressive, and in in, yeah. in some ways that is kind of a similarity. This movie kind of feels like he went. What if we did a Lawrence of Arabia, but in every country that we can get? And it's like, yeah, it's one tiny character against this giant background in these disparate locations, and you know it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. It just looks incredible. Let's do it. It is. I think. It was something like Tarsum Singh just wanted to say, the world is full of beautiful things that you don't even know about. Let me yeah. show them to you. <laughs> yes. And that works and that works in conjunction with the text. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's both it's both a little girl who's confined to a hospital getting to experience, quote unquote, these things through a story that she's hearing. And it's also like, you know, Roy wants to end his life and so the movie is showing you, look at all these wonderful things in the world that you can go go out and see instead of ending your life. Yeah. Um, uh, last couple of things I wanted to touch on are the costumes. I, I, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I did want to shout out that uh, 
I, I and forgive pronunciation. I want to say it's Aiko Ishioka was the mm. costume designer for this movie. Uh, she won an Oscar for costumes in uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula in 1992. Oh, uh, and, hell yeah. And was also nominated for an Oscar for Mirror Mirror, uh, which was directed by Tarsim Singh. Uh, I wanted to shout this out because as beautiful as all the locations are, I believe the costumes rise to meet that. Mm-hmm. The, the vibrancy of every color, every fabric, every... And, and all the different designs that match the characters so well to the story that Roy is telling. Uh, and it, there's a versatility that's required for this sort of costume making, uh, for this sort of story. Because, you know, Luigi is not <laughs> from the same part of the world as uh, uh, Darwin. And, you know, and, and they're not from, you know, like they all have their own yeah. characteristics that require a different sort of style. And I just think it works brilliantly and elevates the characters, especially considering that a lot of these characters you don't get a lot of dialogue from. And Bad in the grand scheme yeah. of things, you don't get to spend a whole lot of time learning about them. But there's, you, I feel like you do get a lot of their character from their visual aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to shout those out. Uh, do you guys have any comments on the costumes? No, it's just stunning. It's it's like they took someone and like, do go crazy. And we'll put in the movie and yeah i think the highest compliment the highest compliment i can pay the costumes is that they seem to fit into the visual aesthetic of this movie which is already like a a pretty dazzling visual aesthetic Mm -hmm. because of the locations and uh the costumes like are on par Mm -hmm. with the locations which is you know high praise i think i'm intending to use high praise and also they're they're crazy but in in the best sense of the word like at one point and colorful and one point this woman has is wearing two fans and she pulls them aside and they don't close which is what i was expecting but they move like on a hinge and they stick there and you can see her eyes while these things are just fanned out in, on kind her of a head. beautiful headdress it's like, like <laughs> how do you come up with that it's yeah it's great um i wish this movie was more popular because i for sure would have caught done a, co- a halloween costume as uh, as the bandit oh, at yeah. some point <laughs> <laughs> Uh, still can still can really, make it happen it's like zorro but with a skirt and a red mask <laughs> which is no it's got like really baggy pants like never, zorro yeah. with aladdin's pants yes yes basically uh good stuff so the last thing i wanted to talk about was the performances i i think it is very interesting like we said that so few of these actors and actresses have gone on to other you know movies or tv mm-hmm. shows even uh because I I really think they're all pretty good. Like, I don't think that there was any that I was like, oh, yeah, no wonder this guy doesn't have a career afterwards. <laughs> I feel like they all kind of nailed it. Josh, you look like you have some well, thoughts on that. I, I, I like the actors in this, but there's not really many performances besides the two main ones. Mm-hmm. Like, all the other performances are kind of at a, at a, at a distance to us because, like, it's we don't learn anything about them and like, they don't really have like big moments to shine for the most part. Like a lot of the, a lot of the individual character moments happen over montage, mm-hmm. you know? And like, I don't know, like we're, we're experiencing this. There's so many layers between us and like the character. Cause it's, you know, Roy telling a story that he's making up and like, uh, Alexandria imagining it and like picturing people from her life in the roles. But like, they're not given a whole lot to 
do necessarily, I feel like, be, other than Lee Pace and, and the uh, sure. girl who plays Alexandria. I, I think that uh, the old man that she meets in the hospital uh, and has she has multiple interactions with, they're... they're it's not like a groundbreaking performance. He has like two scenes, yeah, you know. But like, I don't know. I just think there was a there's a sweetness to that scene yeah. that you know. There's certainly a sweetness, but I'm not like I'm not sitting there and going like, oh, why wasn't this guy in more stuff? Like sure. if this if this guy was more stuff, I wouldn't recognize him, you know, because he he doesn't leave enough of an impression on me in this. Okay, I mean that, and that's fair. Uh, I think that um, there's something to be said for not, you know, like. I don't know. They 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 don't bring any scene down to me. There's never a moment where no, I, I think agree. any of the actors were debilitating. And again, they're, they're all good in this, there but are there actual are actual movie they're, stars. They're not asked to do a lot. Yeah. I was just saying there are actual movie stars that I think make the scenes they're in worse at times. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so while yeah, they're not all given a lot. I think Darwin's given uh, a little a few bit. Moments. Yeah. Uh, and I, what I wanted to say was the, the characters and uh, the nurse uh, who becomes the love interest in the story, uh, she's given a few moments as well. And I think that they're given those moments uh, and that they do a good job with it, and particularly the nurse. Uh, I think they are kind of in the story. All of them are kind of overacting mm-hmm. in, in the story that she's being that that she's, you know, visualizing that yeah. Alexandria is visualizing. So the nurse is like very much a over-exaggerated damsel in distress at times. And I think that that works very well, yeah. uh, in my but opinion. It, it, yeah, I mean, their emotions, are, their emotions are being filtered through the emotional lens of a six-year-old. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it, it makes sense they're very big and, and over the top. I do think that the characters that are given the most opportunities are the ones that Alexandria actually gets to spend the most time with. Whereas, like, the, the Indian that she puts into the story uh, is from the orange, the orange orchard that uh, she injured her arm at. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she, you know, isn't interacting with him. So that character doesn't get a whole lot of additional exposition, but the, the nurse she's seeing regularly. And so the nurse becomes a central character and, you know, gets more time. I don't know. I I thought there was some interesting uh, uh, structure there with which characters are given more time to shine with what's happening to her in her real life. But, this, but is, uh, this is certainly though the the Lee Pace show. Like he, oh yeah, he has some great scenes. The, the scenes that we mentioned where they're both crying and he's telling the story is just like that's that's good. Like considering that he's doing this with this child actor who's not really an actor and she's nailing it as well. Like that that's a really really well acted scene that um, could have gone very wrong. I think as well. The only other thing I wanted to say uh, because I, I wanted to talk about the the characters here. One, uh, we, we've talked about uh, Charles Darwin, but we mentioned his monkey, Wallace, and I just thought this was an interesting factoid that you might not know, and you certainly wouldn't pick it up from the movie, but the reason his monkey's name is Wallace is uh, because Wallace is named after Alfred Russell Wallace, mm. who actually came up with the idea of natural selection independently from Charles Darwin. They then presented the theory together, but because Darwin's book on the origin of species, Darwin is the one who gets all the credit for... <laughs> that theory uh and this comes across in the portrayal in the movie where uh Dar- uh charles darwin keeps talking to wallace the monkey in the, who he's keeping hidden in a sack and then starts to say oh we have an idea but then always corrects himself to say i have an idea i have an idea <laughs> charles darwin took credit for wallace's work so <laughs> that's good uh so i i think that's that's very very funny 
Uh, and the other thing I wanted to just say was that uh, I love the use of the actors in the real world as well as in the story. It makes sense. It's obvious. Yeah. It's an obvious decision to make for this sort of story. But it, it adds just a little bit of fun for me to go like, okay, now where is this when person? Where did we see this guy? In the yeah. real, where did I see this guy in the real world? And uh, I, I found that to be a very enjoyable aspect of the movie. Uh, so now we're to our final thoughts. Uh, who wants to go first? Uh, Josh, Josh, you go first. Final thoughts. Well, I want to ask you guys real quick. What do you think of the... This reminds me of like something like The Princess Bride, which yes. is someone telling a story, and the bulk of the movie is the story being told, but we also return to the framing device. In The Princess Bride, I would definitely call that a framing device. Would you call this a framing device? It seems a little bit more than that yeah, to me. I would agree that it, there's it's more substantial than that because yeah. the there is catharsis in the real world derived from catharsis in the story being told. Actually, now that I'm I'm, I'm just kind of thinking through this right now, I think actually that like part of the reason the story within the story loses steam in the second half is because like the hospital becomes the main dramatic focus. Yeah, because we learned what Roy's actually doing with telling the story, so like that becomes more interesting than the story he's telling itself. Yes, and, which and the point of the story is w- what Roy is going through in the hospital, even when the mm-hmm. story itself is what it has center of attention, especially in the first half. It's what Alexandria is, is yeah. focusing on for sure. Yeah, the I point almost of the for- movie changes. I almost forgot to give particular shout out to the sequence that Alex thought was so bad uh, <laughs> the stop motion, the stop motion thing. thing. Yeah. there's a point in the movie where uh alexandria injures her head because she goes back to get more morphine for roy so that roy will finish the story mm-hmm. uh, and she falls mm-hmm. and cracks open her skull and is you know now has another wound to heal in the hospital uh when she when they are working on her in this hospital uh instead of getting the fantastical world of roy's story or the real world of the hospital we get a stop motion sequence of bizarre little sort of where they like open up the top of her head and pull cotton, cotton candy, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, and like, and this is, I think, the her subconscious is what we're supposed to be getting here. Yeah. This is what her brain is mm-hmm. visualizing as all this is happening around her, yeah. uh, in the real world. And I think that it is interesting to think about what a child's brain would think is happening when they are incapable of actually processing the images around them uh, or what's being said properly. Uh, so I thought that was a very interesting uh, visual moment. Per- yeah, particularly for it's interesting to see a child process things, especially from a very imaginative child, because we already know that this person is incredibly imaginative because we've seen the first hour 20 of the movie <laughs> that's happened so far and been inside her head as she pictures Roy's story. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess my final thoughts are I think this movie is like close to being one of the greatest movies I've ever seen, but like the narrative doesn't quite fully hang together for me and i think that might be just like you know the shifting point of view um and like you've already said it but like the story that roy is telling is very clearly something he's making up as as it goes along so it's not like not as satisfying as it could be i guess uh even though it does build to a very satisfying climax where he decides not to kill himself but um like you said it's everyone should see it because of the visuals mm-hmm. and it's there's nothing else like it and the story itself while very interesting like is i guess holding me back a little bit from you know making this a perfect movie but uh it's still very very good and uh 
it, it is one that like I I I feel the need to like recommend to people, and I I did when I first saw it 15 years ago. I made all my friends in the dorm watch it too. So, Hugo, what are your thoughts? This is your first time seeing it. Um, yeah, same. I thought it was great. It you know it's not the most groundbreaking story I've ever seen, but on a, in terms of just uh, how impressed I am that the film exists in the form that it is, and just the sheer audacity of trying to make this in, in, you know, and going to all these locations and while at the same time trying to not just be, oh, cool looking visuals, that it's not just that. It's still framed within a very human, very powerful emotional story in the hospital. So, like, there's a version of this movie where it's all the fantastical story and it's not as interesting there's a version of this movie where it's all the suicidal guy in the hospital and it's not as interesting and somehow they bring them all together in in a way that is satisfying um even though again the the story within the story doesn't always have as much interest as it does in the first half but i I think it's great i'm very happy to have seen it very happy that you suggested it i don't know if i would have ever watched it without the podcast which i think is very cool when that happens because you know, that's the kind of the point of doing it. So, yeah. In my well, ranking, so, if oh, we want to do that. Well, well, hold on, hold on. I, I want to hear why Grizz says this is the number one movie he's ever seen. Yeah. I want to hear why, why this is this my favorite movie of yeah. all time. Yes. Uh, yes. I, one, think that the, the things that are maybe weaknesses for other people, I don't register them as weaknesses. Like, the lull in the story, while I acknowledge that it is not as interesting in the, the fantastical story he's telling, this adventure... There's a lull in the middle, but I think it's justified by where the character mm-hmm. is in the real world, like his in his mental state and what's happening. So I I find it impressive that and uh, kind of a bold risk to take in the storytelling to do that when you know that it is going to maybe be a little less engaging for the viewer, but it is true to what the character would be doing. And so I have an appreciation for that. Uh, I also think it's one of my... It is my favorite movie of all time because of the visuals. It's... This is the way I wish every movie could be made. I wish every movie could go to the location that fits that moment perfectly. And even if it's for five seconds in a movie, if if that location would be perfect for it, I wish every movie could do that. And I am understanding that that is not possible and or at the very least highly improbable because of the way movies are made there's there's so yeah. many moving parts that it really is a, a it's a task of a person who's who is refusing to let anything else dictate how they're going to tell their story mm-hmm. and whether it be any you know any sort of impediment to to that progress they're willing to overcome it because this is what they visualized. I have such an appreciation for that for a director. Uh, I think about other directors that, like, what could they have done if they didn't have to stick to any of the rules of filmmaking? And you see that sometimes, like David Lean, Lawrence of Arabia, they set out and they they shot it all where it was supposed to be, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, they made it look exactly the best possible way that that movie could look visually, and they did it every time. But even, like, uh, even things like Mad Max Fury Road, for example, yes. is another one that I'm like, th- yeah. you know, they th- this uncompromising director just doing his thing. And, and, you know, nine times out of ten, it doesn't happen. 
they don't make the movie or they make it and they did need those limitations and the movie doesn't actually work and and when it does work it's just there's something about it that is so impressive that it, it blows you away and i so i one love the visuals i i think that it's it's like i said before you know, there's so many beautiful places in the world and there's so many more that like i will never see and may never even know exists and then it's movies like this that show you how fantastic our world is and the achievements of the people in it there some of these you know places that they go in this movie the architecture is centuries old and yeah it's breathtaking and it's like i can't believe they did this that the there's the scene where where darwin is you know is going to get shot you know and all the uh you know black suited you know armor people are coming up all these staircases a wall of staircases there's no reason that, that should exist a wall of staircases is there's no like structural reason there's no beneficial reason to have that many stairs all crisscrossing all up and down there's no reason that should exist is, but it does and it's is that called the labyrinth it, uh no I that, think in in india i don't know if that one's the labyrinth because the labyrinth i think is where the uh no where uh, she's trapped where the, the woman is trapped oh you're right i'm sorry yeah okay yeah uh which is also an incredible bit of architecture yeah, yeah. that again it's, serves it, no real purpose other than yeah. it's cool <laughs> Uh, but so I, I just have so much affection for the the way he set out to make this movie, and maybe I bought in a little bit to the legend of its filmmaking. I think mm-hmm. that you know, while Lee Pace isn't the first guy to commit to a role, you know, and I you know stay in a wheelchair the entire time, like you know, there's there's other actors who have done similar things, but it's just it all is in a confluence to this one movie. That and then the fact that so few people know about it is yeah another yeah. thing that I just think it's like it feels personal to me like it's my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that there's you know uh, you know several hundred thousand people have seen this movie, you know, but uh, when you meet someone who has there and you talk about it, there's that moment where they're like, oh my god, I've never talked to anyone else who has seen this movie. A club member. Yeah, exactly. And there's just a camaraderie <laughs> that is attached to this movie for me. That, yeah. uh, I mean, it's, it just all comes together for me. And I, uh, it's just, it's the perfect movie for me. It's it's also like, ultimately, um, extremely life-affirming. Which I think is something you yeah. definitely gravitate towards. Oh, Even yeah. if it, it, it goes through... You know, it goes through a major struggle in your own willingness to be alive, and then it comes out of it affirming life and being this beautiful celebration of almost, you know, humanity's ability to make beautiful things. And I think that's something that fits with with the person you are and the type of film that you like. So I understand why you see that in this and why it's one of your favorite movies. And it means a lot to uh, have gotten this opportunity to share it with you guys. That's good, man. I'm happy yeah. you showed this to us. Like, it's awesome. All right, let's uh, let's rank. We'll start with Hugo. Okay, uh, as I say that, um, within the list of movies that we built, hang on, let me find it. The film to remember revisited is what I call it, which is in a Matrix reference, of course. Um, <laughs> I have this at number 
32 on my list. 32. Just to give you an idea, just below Citizen Kane and just above Thank You for Smoking. Great movie. Happy to have seen it. Uh, for me, I'm putting this uh, around the middle, top half. Uh, I'm putting this at number 23. So <laughs> this is behind Mank and Paddington 2 and just ahead of two similar visual aesthetics, 127 Hours and Lawrence of Arabia. Hmm. I'm putting this ahead of Lawrence of Arabia, which might be sacrilege, but I also saw this 15 years before I ever saw Lawrence of Arabia, so that's... That's my defense. I mean, that's I also put there. it above Lawrence of Arabia, so... That's true, you did. That's true, you did. <laughs> and I am uh, the only person on this so... podcast who actually respects Lawrence of Arabia enough. <laughs> yeah, well, you're British, so, you know, whatever. Um, or British-sounding, rather. Uh, so that means I have it at 23, Hugo has it at 32, Grizz has it at 1, which, using the super-secret proprietary algorithm, puts it at number 8. Number eight. Number eight. Number eight. Behind number Memories eight. of Murder, Shaun of the Dead, The Fall, just ahead of, at number nine, Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, <laughs> no. that's great. That's... <laughs> so, the new top ten, Children of Men, Dr. Strangelove, Ferris Blue's Day Off, Silence of the Lambs, Panion 2, Memories of Murder, Shaun of the Dead, The Fall, Lawrence of Arabia, Mulholland Drive, Outside Looking In, The Thing, and The Depotted. Great top ten. And there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so that's going to do it for this week. Uh, our next episode is going to be a little ways off. We're taking a little... Sometime in the future. A little hiatus. Uh, so if you would, follow us on our respective social medias and at RTF underscore pod. Uh, and we will announce a return when that happens. Uh, anyways, you can find me on uh, twitch.tv slash goodgamegrizz and on twitter at goodgamegrizz and I would love for you to follow me on Letterboxd search Jeff Ulrich or goodgamegrizz Hugo? You can find me at Hugo Nascorpionai you can search for me on Letterboxd at Hugo Penai and you can listen to Large Popcorn which I'm on once a month to do a movie club. Next um, theme is movies in Spanish so you guys can vote on Twitter for that Ah uh, on Twitter, on Twitter at Sloop Josh B, on YouTube, Movies I Love, So Can You, on TikTok at Josh W. Bradley, and follow at RTF underscore pod for this stuff. That's going to do it. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Have a great week or longer. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.